Um, all right, Mark 9, let's jump into this. And so we have, um, it's actually going to be 13 verses. So I, I changed the text, but forgot to change the little thing at the bottom there. So 9, verse 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared, covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man, and listen to this, the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do thank you for your word. We do, as we do every Sunday, uh, we hold it up and recognize that it has authority both over the way we think and our lives. May you, through the preaching of your word, make us more like Christ as we submit, seek to submit to the word of God. Father, we're thankful that we have this book, that we can hear directly from you what it is, who it is that you are, understanding who you are, and in turn, understanding who we are as followers of you. Convict us of sin, of wrong thinking, of sins that we've committed both this week and in our lifetime. Convict us of sin and cause repentance of heart. And make us more and more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My kids, as they, as they have gotten older, have gotten more and more interested in what I do for work. And so on Saturday, uh, the day before, they'll often ask me who's preaching. Um, and if I'm preaching, they'll ask me, what are you preaching on? And when I told them, I said, we're preaching on this passage from Mark 9, one of my daughters, her face lit up and she has been reading her Bible. She has this, this kind of action Bible that has a bunch of pictures in it. She loves it. I love too. And she said, oh, is that the story of them up on the mountain with Peter, James and John? And I said, first, I was like, that's incredible. You know, well done that you know that. But second of all, what was so fun about it was the way her eyes lit up. And it reminded me that this story, though we're going to talk about some tangible applications from it, this story is unbelievably, incredibly 
beautiful, and majestic. So when we think about this, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. Then it said Jesus, and Jesus, we need to be clear that Jesus, uh, we have pictures of Jesus, and you know we can laugh about how we've often gotten these pictures wrong, and Jesus was probably very dark-skinned, you know, brown man from the Middle East, but we know from Scripture, that from Isaiah 53, no form or majesty that we should look at him. There wasn't anything majestic about Jesus. In this story, there he was transfigured before them. The Greek word for transfigure is the same Greek word that we get to form the word metamorphosis. So something incredible happened. His clothes then became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And we are going to press pause Right here. Peter, James, and John, this makes sense. These are, you know, his boys, his guys that he has been walking with, discipling. But Moses and Elijah, what in the world is happening? If you're new to Christianity, if you are of Christ to, to read the Bible and understand what the Bible says about God and the stories, and the, especially in the Old Testament. I'm going to break this down for you a little bit. I'm going to start with Moses. So Moses we know from the book of Exodus, and there's so many parallels that would have Bibles would have gone off to Peter, James, and John that may you know, be a little slower to go off with us as New Testament believers. But there's so many parallels here. First of all, this moment, the transfiguration, this happens a chapter after Jesus has fed all of those hungry people in Mark 8 with a few fishes and loaves. Which reminds us of the Israelites being fed with manna in the wilderness. So you have a connection between Jesus feeding the hungry and God through Moses providing for the hungry. The book of Exodus also tells us that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and his face was to the radiance of Jesus in this story. The cloud that covers the mountain, if you look back in Exodus 24 on Mount Sinai, the last half of that chapter in the Old Testament, there's a parallel to the cloud that, that, that God formed then to the cloud on the mount the transfiguration in this story here. And these parallels are not just circumstantial, but Moses, it has long been ascribed to Moses as he is the giver of the law. So when we think about those ten commandments that he comes down the mountain with, even looking back as far back theologically as origin from the second century, they taught that Moses was the giver of the law. And then now Jesus, as we know from the New Testament, does not just say the law is good, but he fulfills the law. So Moses told the people about the rules that needed to be followed, that God's rules needed to be followed, yet Jesus was the one that came to do, and not just do, but actually follow and fulfill those laws. 
So then we shift over to the other seemingly random person for us up there, Elijah. Well, Elijah, just as Moses represented the law, Elijah represented those prophets, which in the Old Testament literally referred, the Old Testament as a whole is referred to as the law and the prophets. So the law is Moses and Elijah is the prophets, representing the prophets. And so ultimately, just there to signify that the prophets of old, all of those those men and women who are the mouthpieces of God, are now being fulfilled. The prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ. These men are magically up on the mountain to say. These men are magically up on the mountain to say. Everything is taught. Everything is taught about those Old Testament books. It was all pointing to this man, Jesus. And it gets better. These men—I mean, literally, the last person, last time we saw Elijah, as we saw from that puppet show, was eight years ago when he was riding on a chariot of fire. So, eight hundred years prior, Moses had been dead for at least thirteen hundred years before this. Yet if you were a Jewish person, you would not only have seen the parallels that I named, you would have thought back to Moses being the leader of God's people. When they, when Peter, James, and John saw Moses, they were in Moses being the one that led the Israelites out of bondage. Let my people go. And here is Moses and Elijah signing off on Jesus. There's a funny story about the hip-hop star Drake that I heard a couple years ago, where Drake was, I think it was in New York City, but he was headed to a nightclub. Late at night, is midnight, 12.30, and how nightclubs work if you're new to the nightclub scene is that there's oftentimes a long line of folks that are waiting to get in, and these are your that kind of non-VIPs, normal folks. And there's also a door or a section of, uh, of you know, roped off section where your VIPs, they stroll up and they don't have to wait in the line to get in. So the story goes, Drake tells a story that he walked up and in essence the bouncer who was out there out front looked at Drake and he said, now sir, who are you with? And Drake kind of looked around, Drake the hip-hop star who sold millions of albums, he looked around and says, who am I with? I am the person people are with to get in this nightclub. Who am I with? I'm Drake. And he had, you know, arrogant uh, composure to himself at that point because he was frustrated. And what is going on here is that in that story is that Drake is the one that they blow open the doors for at any nightclub in New York City. And I want to help you understand that if you are new to Christianity, Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament, they're the ones that roll in and don't need to wait in a line. These are the OGs. These are the, the big wigs. These are the heroes of the Old Testament. And I know I just compared the Transfiguration to a nightclub in New York, so forgive me for that. But I need you to understand the importance of having Moses, Moses and Elijah on the scene here. Elijah, out of all the prophets, was probably the one that was most like Jesus. He was always mixing it up with healings and miracles and warnings of judgment to come. And he who rode off in a chariot 800 years prior 
is saying, Jesus is with me. So Jesus was the better Moses. He came not just to tell us about the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus was the better Elijah. He didn't just come to heal the outside. He came to heal the outside and the inside. And let's keep going here. Jesus was the better Noah. Clay, you can hit that slide. Jesus was the better Noah for all the Old Testament heroes. He was the better Noah. He didn't just build a wooden ark to save a few. Jesus carried and died on a wooden cross to save all of his people. Jesus was the better Joseph, a story I just read two nights ago to my kids. Jesus was betrayed by his brothers and still chose to forgive them and shelter them. But not just temporarily, but for eternity. And Jesus is the better Esther, a woman who put her life on the line for her people to save them temporarily. Jesus put his life on the line to save his people for eternity. So in the midst of this incredible moment on the mountain, Peter takes the bold suggestion that they should take they should build some tabernacles, literally some house-like structures. He's up there having his life and says, "We need to stay here." And Peter, forgive him, is just trying his best to understand what in the world is going on. Verse 6 says he which is kind of the most understated verse probably in the whole Bible. Jesus is trying to understand what's going on. And to give him some credit, if you know the Old Testament, Israel had dwelt in shelters in the wilderness during the Exodus. So when he sees Moses, the light bulbs go off. The Israel actually, they literally commemorated that event of the Exodus by building replica shelters yearly during the commemoration ceremony. So I think this is the mo- the piece, the kind of the dots kind of coming together for Moses, and almost all pieces come together, but clearly something ain't right. Peter's consistent problem isn't his over-eager personality. I think this is actually a great trait of his. See, Peter was absolutely in awe of Jesus. He followed him seemingly fearlessly forward. And literally just eight days before that, Jesus had asked, whom do men say that I am? And and Peter replied, you are the Christ, you are the living God. I don't think that Peter forgets that Jesus is the Messiah. I think he forgets that Jesus is on a mission. The big mistake that Peter makes is not the mistake that we probably wouldn't make if we were in his shoes. It's that he couldn't get his head around the fact that this was not the end of the story. That the story was going to go from here and go back down the mountain and head towards a cross to Christ's suffering and death. Mark 8 tells us, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is one chapter prior. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter loved Jesus, but he did not understand why Jesus had 
to die. Jesus forgot again that Christ cannot simply set up camp on that mountain with Elijah and Moses and live forever. No, he's on a mission. He's headed to another mountain, a mountain that will, he will shed, where he will shed his body and blood for his people. So Jesus appears in dazzling white clothes, hanging with Moses and Elijah, and Peter makes these suggestions and, and to build the tabernacles and hang here, and this is what made God actually speak. So we think about the sequence of events here, Elijah, Moses, hanging out, dazzling clothes. Peter makes this suggestion, and at this point, that's when God forms that cloud, comes down and said, this is my son whom I love, in the last three words, Listen to him. And so if those three words, listen to him, what does Jesus say after this in the remaining verses? He says, don't tell anyone about this until I've risen from the dead. He then goes on in verse 12 and 13 to say that I must suffer much and be rejected. So what God in that moment, he, the light bulb goes off, that he says, I need Peter and everyone else to understand that Jesus is not done here. He's headed to suffering. N.T. Wright says, we only understand the mountain of transfiguration when we see it alongside the other mountain. We must learn to see this in light of the glory of the cross. William Love, and this is William Lane, this is going to come up on your screen. He says, the desire to erect new tents a meeting where God can again communicate with men implies that Peter regards the time of the second exodus fulfilled and the goal of the Sabbath rest achieved. He thought that we, they were done at this point. But before the rest is achieved, the suffering and death of the Messiah must take place. Peter again stumbles at the necessity of a suffering Messiah. He is anxious to find the fulfillment of the promised glory now prior to the suffering Jesus has announced as necessary. His comment reflects a failure to appreciate the transfiguration, that it was only a moment, momentary anticipation of the glory of the consummated kingdom. Peter and us need to understand that on this day with Peter, James, and John, Jesus stands in glory robed in celestial light on the Mount of Transfiguration, but in a little while longer, he's headed to the mountain of Calvary, where he will hang naked as soldiers gamble for his clothes. On this day on the Mount of Transfiguration, he stands before or between two heroes in the Bible. And on the Mount of Calvary, after he leaves this mountain, he'll stand before, he'll hang between two nameless criminals. On this day, on the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud envelopes the scene. And on the Mount of Calvary, an eerie midday darkness will cover the land. On this day, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter is so jacked that he wants to stay there forever with Jesus and his buddies and Elijah and Moses. But on the Mount of Calvary, when Jesus hangs on that cross, Peter is hiding in shame after denying he even knows Jesus. And on this day on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father shouts from heaven, listen to my dearly loved son. And on the Mount of Calvary, an enemy soldier simply says, I think we killed God's son. 
Jesus knows that he's headed down this mountain to another more painful mountain to come. And Peter and the rest of us need to understand that that is the gospel story. What God wanted the disciples and us to understand was that this day was a little taste of the glory to come, but it could not fully come until Christ came and suffered and died on our behalf. Peter wanted the glory without the suffering, and that just ain't an option. So what is God teaching us through this story? First, I just I mean, want to say that there is application. I'm going to name that, but I also want to be willing read stories like this just to sit in the beauty of it and recognize that God is writing a long story and it all points to Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite uh, authors, a children's author, says every story in the Bible whispers Jesus's name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And when it clicks with us that God is in control of this incredibly dynamic story that stretches from the dawn of time, working in the lives of people even much further in time away from Christ than we are in 2021, and that God has revealed that Jesus is, was the hero of every story in the Bible, and we know that we are in his story, and we also know that it will end well. We know where we're heading, in, in, as we know from Revelation, where there's no more tears, no more sin, no more pain. So therefore, we know that no matter what we're going through, we can find comfort that he is authoring this magnificent story. And that you and I, by the grace of God, don't just get to benefit from it, but get to be a part of it. The second thing that I think God is teaching us through this story is that suffering is part of of the gospel story. There is no redemption without suffering. Jesus had the chance at this point to just simply say, I want to go back to where I can be with, with God and to go back to where Moses and Elijah are. I just want to be done with this. But he knows that the story, the redemptive story, has to include suffering. And he willingly leaned into it. And this is the perfect lead-in. There's a reason we talk about this the Sunday before Ash Wednesday in the beginning of Lent where we, where we talk about, we take some increased time to think about lament and our sin and suffering. And we recognize that as Christians in 2021, as people that live in society today, there is a push against any type of suffering where we want to just live a life that is devoid of suffering, but we know as Christians that we are not trying to, uh, you know, trying to bring on suffering, but we know also that we cannot avoid it. And our best life is leaning into it and walking with God through our darkest and most difficult times. We hear from the Scripture that Jesus, we see from the Scripture that Jesus, when he suffered, that God did not, that did not abandon him in his difficult times, but walked with him through it. We see that when the, 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 the gospel writers, when they talk through what it looks like for Jesus to walk with others, that we see Jesus willingly leaning in to that. 
And the third thing is that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed some encouragement. It's okay that you do as well. It's okay that when we think about this moment, when we think about God the Father, didn't just do all of this for those disciples. He did it for Jesus too. I think that Jesus knows that a day is coming where he's going to have to suffer on that cross, and he wants to avoid that. He knows a day is coming where he will be, he will be alone on that cross, that ultimately God will, will, will walk with him on the other side, but there is a time where he is alone on that cross. And I know that there's a huge part we see from Scripture that there's a part of it that Jesus does not want to walk forward in that way, but he knows that it's his call to and needs to take a moment now to give him some going forward. I think about my girls when they are playing sports or doing something else active, and I can't be there with them on the basketball court or on the soccer field, and they I will look at, I'll stay looking kind of locked in and try to put my phone away as best I can during those moments because I know that there's going to be at some point where they get nervous or scared, and they're going to look at my wife or I jump on the field with them and give them a hug. But looking at us and we look at them, we give them a clap or just look in the eye and nod our head. And at that point, what we are doing is reminding them that we, that moment gives them the energy to complete and finish the task that they have at hand. And I think that's what's going on in this passage from God to, from the God, the Father to Jesus. And I want you to know that if you are a Christ follower today, it's okay if you need encouragement as well. So we come to Sunday morning and you hear a sermon. You are participating in worship, but we also head towards the communion table and are spiritually nourished by this sacrament. So I want you all this morning as you participate in communion to be honest about the ways that you need encouragement and ask God to meet you here. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your scripture and the ways that you care for us by the writing of your Bible. And I thank you for this story, and I pray that there is so much that we can gain from this the reading of your scripture. And I pray that you would allow anything that was wrong to not to fall on, to, to fall on deaf ears and anything that was true from our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.